Welcome everyone online. We're glad to have you with us. It's such an interesting concept now that uh, people can be in totally other cities, totally other countries, uh, listening in, watching in on our services together, and we are grateful that you're there. And we hope that you can, whether you're near or far, visit us sometime here in, in person. As a pastor, uh, I'm given a bit of a window into many of your lives, and uh, it doesn't uh, go unnoticed that you trust pastors to be able to share with them prayer requests and that sort of thing. And as I look out on this uh, group here today, I'm reminded of many of your joys and hurts and sorrows, and uh, together we are lifting one another up in prayer Together, And I know you're aware of each other's uh, joys and hurts, so let's continue to be this body of Christ that uh, worships and loves and prays for one another. Speaking of prayer, last week we began a sermon series on spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices. We've called it ancient faith because we're talking about things that have been part of the church since ancient times. And so from ancient times, there have been certain spiritual practices that have held the body of Christ together, have held individual churches together, and we've begun to speak into what those are and just kind of enumerate them one by one and, and talk about them together. Last week, we talked a bit about prayer and meditation and solitude, and I'm sure many of you, like me, went home with a list of things to do and to pray more and to meditate more and to be in solitude more, and then I went, oh my goodness, no, that's not what we want to be doing. We want to be at peace, <laughs> and we want to be in solitude, and we don't want to make it, turn it into a list of things we have to accomplish, Right? That's not the goal of spiritual practices, is not to create new lists of things to do. The goal is to remind ourselves of things that hopefully might come natural and that we might do. We talked about prayer as being something that when a worry comes along, we just toss it up to God very naturally wherever we are and whatever we're doing and we seek to just be in constant relationship with our God and in prayer. And so please don't turn this into some kind of legalism as I am tempted to do sometimes or turn it into lists of things we want to do. The one we're going to talk about today is fasting. And fasting is certainly one of those ones that easily gets regulated and turned into legalism or asceticism or something of that nature. And we want to make sure that we are just looking at a practice that has been useful for the church for centuries and learning from it and using it as it is helpful in our spiritual journey. So together we grow in this process together. Yeah, when the, the pastor starts talking about things like fasting or maybe financial giving or other uncomfortable topics, it can be easy to kind of go, oh, I don't know if I want to hear this sermon. Well, pastors have the same problem. This whole week, I really wrestled with this sermon about fasting. I probably wrestled with this message more than I have almost any other sermon that I've given to you. Because it's something that I want to be authentic with and tell you some of my practices and that sort of thing. And yet, 
Fasting is all about our relationship with God. And it's kind of a one-on-one thing. And so we're, we don't talk a lot about it to, as to how, what our practices are. And I've struggled with it a lot this week. My message for you today will probably sound a little bit more like teaching rather than preaching. It'll be some information. I hope you will take the information and the different things we learn from the Bible and from other places of history. And that you'll go home and you'll study it some more. One sermon on fasting will not be sufficient to give us a good grounding in the practice. But I do hope that together we might look at this practice together and and consider it for our daily walk with Jesus. So, let's dive into it together and see what comes of it. John Wesley had this to say about fasting. He said, Some have exalted religious fasting beyond all scripture and reason, and others have utterly disregarded it. Richard Foster, in his book, uh, Celebration of Discipline, to which we will refer lots, it's kind of a bit of a guide for us in this sermon series, um, says, with the decline of the inward reality of the Christian faith, an increasing tendency to stress the only thing left, the outward form developed. He's kind of speaking historically there. He's saying as Christianity grew and progressed, there was a time where the internal spiritual reality became less of a thing and the outward forms and the empty outward forms sometimes became more of a reality. And he goes on to say that whenever there is a form devoid of spiritual power, law will take over because law always carries with it a sense of security and manipulative power. And so fasting was one of those things that it was required of people in certain times in history of the church, and it was regulated, and there were rules about it, and you had to do this on Tuesday, and you had to do this on Thursday, and you had to do this on Friday, and there were all kinds of regulations that grew up around it. And he's saying, hence fasting was subjected to the most rigid regulations and practiced with extreme self-mortification or self-death, self-denial, and flagellation or punishment. Modern culture reacts strongly to these excesses and tends to confuse fasting with mortification or with death, right? So he's just reminding us that we shouldn't turn this into rules, regulations, and emptiness. It has to be a spiritual reality. So if you have some aversion to fasting, well, it may well be because of the way it's been presented to you in the past. Both Foster and Wesley would agree that fasting is a natural part of our spiritual practice and should neither be ignored, like Wesley says, it's been totally ignored in some cases, nor overly emphasized, as they both seem to be saying. It's more, mostly a physical and spiritual practice that must never become something that we do to prove how devoted we are or as an empty outward form. So, and a little bit of a definition here. Typically when uh, we talk about fasting in the Bible, particularly, well, particularly in any part of the Bible, 
we're really talking about abstaining from food, abstaining from calories, but not abstaining from water. Okay? Now, there are a few examples in the Bible of people that were given kind of a supernatural ability by God to go without food and without water for long periods of time. Those are the exceptions. Those are supernaturally powered fasting experiences. And Moses had some of those and others had some of those. But what we're typically talking about is just uh, abstaining from food, but continuing to drink water. And it's for short periods of time, uh, for the most part. And so when you think about what we're talking about here, think about fasting in that context. And so we'll, we'll offer you a little bit more here in the next uh, few moments as we talk about this a bit more. But I think it's time, uh, well, I guess the other, other thing is to distinguish it from Lent. In Lent, we say, oh, we're going to give up something for a, a season, for those 40 days in Lent. And that's, a, you know, an acceptable part of our spiritual practice as well. We need to distinguish that a little bit from the type of fasting we're talking about here today. You might say in Lent, oh, I'm going to give up social media for some period of time. Or I'm going to give up wine, or I'm going to give up coffee, or I'm going to give up meat, or some other thing that you're going to give up in that time. And that's, that's a good spiritual practice as well, but it's a little bit different. Okay? So, but it's time we get into the Bible, don't you think? Let's take a look at... Uh, what the Bible has to say about fasting and some of the reasons for fasting in the Bible. First of all, we look to fasting as a form, I can look to fasting as a form of repentance. So in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, we see God calling upon his people, the people of Israel, to spend some time in fasting and repentance and authentic worship. Let's read this passage here. <clears throat> Pardon me. That is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Who knows, perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Perhaps you will be able to offer grain and wine to, your, to the Lord your God as before. Blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Gather all the people, the elders, the children, even the babies. Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Let the priests who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep between the entry room to the temple and to the altar. Let them pray, spare your people, Lord. Don't let your special possession become an object of mockery. Don't let them become a joke for unbelieving foreigners who say, has the God of Israel left them? Joel is the book of the Bible that talks about um, the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all people. And it talks about repentance and, and it talks about the hope that God offers to his people. 
And here, fasting is just part of that process. And so fasting is part here of repentance. It's also a part of authentic worship. But all of it has to be authentic, does it not? Fasting is not just for repentance, though. And fasting can also be part of our regular worship and even decision-making. And so if you uh, dive into it with me in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, you'll see there that it's speaking of a, a bunch of the leadership in the church in Antioch, and they were all together. And on that day, it says there that one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So notice what it says there. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. It was just part of their natural life together in the body of Christ. It was part of their natural worship. Fasting was a regular part of that worship. And it seems specifically in this case that it was also about fasting for the sake of decision-making. They were trying to figure out. They had a number of healthy leaders in Antioch, and they wanted to send some of them out on missionary work. And they were trying to decide who that would be. And in the process, they were worshiping and fasting, and God communicates to them. And they become... Uh, and they know who it is that they are to send out. And so it was part of their decision-making process. I said to our search team the other night, I want some of that. <laughs> I want some of that hearing from the Holy Spirit and know what it is that God is guiding, uh, speaking to us and guiding us in our decision-making. And that's a good thing. And so along with that, we pour ourselves into worship we pour ourselves into fasting from time to time. They went on to do that then. And um, Saul and Barnabas, or Paul as he is later known, in Acts chapter 14, we catch up to these guys there. And they, we find in verse 23 of Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting. They turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Again, it seems like they're doing that as part of the decision-making process, part of the ordination process of these leaders. And so we see that fasting is part of regular worship, part of decision-making, can be part of repentance. Fourth, a fourth reason for fasting is that it makes us more aware of God. Now here... I really want to encourage you to go home and look over the entire New Testament in particular and look at those opportunities where people fasted. Because this one is a little bit, it's kind of woven through the whole Bible. I think we see it most clearly in Jesus, that Jesus often went away to a lonely place, it's, it says, and he would spend time in solitude with God, often fasting, and in those moments, he became more aware of God. And those others who fasted became more aware of God. And in this case, it seems, they were, they were prepared for temptation and that sort of thing. 
So, but look at a number of different scriptures, and I think you'll see there this common thread that binds them together, that when people fasted, they became more aware of God, and that's what people today tell, will tell you about fasting, but it also makes them more able to withstand temptation. And so we see some of these things in Luke 4, verses 1 through 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Jesus, of course, had a very intimate walk with his Father God, right? And we have to always consider that as we understand these passages. But he's modeling for us that fasting, prayer, meditation, solitude, those bring us into a greater awareness of God and prepare us for temptations and prepare us to withstand temptations. A fifth reason, and I will, I'll kind of recap these for you in a minute. So if you're losing track or my numbers aren't lining up with your numbers, if you're taking notes, we'll recap in a minute and I'll use a whole different numbering system in a moment. Really confuse you. But a fifth reason for fasting is solidarity with the poor. When we are experiencing hunger, we can better identify with those who regularly experience hunger. If you've never experienced hunger, you don't know what it's like to be hungry, right? And when we experience a little bit of hunger, we often will understand what it means for others who experience major amounts of hunger. Thinking of people in UN refugee camps where the food supply is tenuous, or people who live in the cores of some of our cities sometimes who can't always have good access to food, we become more aware as we feel those grumblings in our own stomachs. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 7, is kind of an example of how we can learn from people who made mistakes about fasting. The, the way they did things is not the way we want to do it, and so we learn from them and we learn from what God says to them. Isaiah 58, verses 3 through 7 there says, We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? Whew, I'm scared for those people. I, that sounds like a, a big thing to say to God. Hey, aren't you impressed with us? We fasted. Yikes, I'd be, tempt, I'd be afraid of lightning bolts at that point or something. I'd want to get down at a low valley or something so I wouldn't get struck. But they say, we have been very hard on ourselves. And you didn't even notice it. I will tell you why, God responds. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? That kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap, that itchy bag stuff that people put, put, in, put stuff into bags. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is 
this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, this is the kind of fasting I want, he says. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind the people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. In other words, fasting does not impress God. We don't do it to impress God. God is not impressed and he points to our lack of concern for the poor. The very spiritual practices that were supposed to enhance their awareness of the poor and empty were just empty things they did. Fasting should help us to identify with the poor and the oppressed. I think there's a further example of this in Jesus. Uh, when he is at the well in Samaria and he is dealing with the woman at the well or speaking to the woman at the well, and he is, he's fasting in, for a short period of time at that well. The disciples go away to get some food and, and to get supplies, but he's left there beside the well without food and with, with uh, an opportunity to ask for a drink. And the woman at the well is in need. And Jesus becomes aware of her need. Now, Jesus was likely always aware of her need, but there's a principle here that as we fast, we become aware of the needs of others. And so Jesus is modeling that when he is fasting, he becomes aware of the needs of the oppressed, of the poor, of those who are hurting, because this woman was hurting and was in need of help. And we pick it up at John chapter 4, verse 31, where it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God, who sent me, and from finishing his work. There's a sense of he's being made aware of the needs of this woman, but there's also a sense that he receives nourishment from God by doing the will of God and by fasting. His aware of the poor and his work for the Father sustained him better than physical food. So there's a bit of a principle here that starving our bodies and doing God's work can lead to feeding our souls. But let's remember, too, a couple more points here. Two more points, and then we'll kind of summarize some of this stuff together. Fasting is between God and us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. We must never forget this passage as we study this stuff together. When you fast, Matthew 6, 16. When you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. Remember in Isaiah 58, we heard about them wearing burlap sacks and itchy clothing, and 
showing off that they had fasted and ashes on their heads. He's saying, don't do that. When you fast, this is verse 17, comb your hair and wash your face. Then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. So again, we notice that fasting is really a form of worship to God. It's something that he alone sees. It's not a way that we manipulate God to get our way. It must always be an aspect of our worship to God. Acts 13 reminded us that while they were worshiping and fasting, God spoke to them. It was part of their daily or part of their routines, regular or irregular. One last scripture we'll look at here, um, Matthew chapter 9. There, is a, um, there are times for fasting and there are times for not fasting. This was when the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, why do your disciples, or sorry, why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? Might have been a little bit of pride there too, right? Hey, we fast, why don't you guys fast? You know, I'm always wearing suspenders when I do this, you know. I picture myself in a bow tie and suspenders, maybe. I'll get myself back on track. You, you do the same here. Here we go. Why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast. Here Jesus makes it clear that there is a time for fasting and a time for not fasting. And he doesn't spell it out as to when we should fast. The Pharisees did a lot of that. And it would seem that John the Baptist's disciples were kind of used to that of here's when you should fast and here are the rules and regulations. But Jesus seems to be saying there's a time to fast and a time not to fast. And he's leaving it to us to sort it out. I think that's healthy for us to figure out when it might be a good time to fast. Certainly physically, we do need to be aware when you're unhealthy, when there's some sickness going on, you may not want to fast. Or in, in fact, sometimes when you just got a cold or something, fasting might help. <laughs> but there are times to fast and there are times not to fast. There are spiritual times to fast and, and spiritual times not to fast. Jesus <clears throat> seems to be saying that here, that there's a time to fast and a time not to fast. Yet, He's assuming that fasting will be part of what we do on a regular basis of some sort. And he's saying that the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus through history, will use fasting as one of our spiritual practices. So, where have we got to? Uh, what have we got so far? Um, I'm going to list a few things here. We know that fasting can be for sincere repentance. Fasting can be part of how we make decisions. Fasting is a regular part of worship. Fasting is a way of being more aware of God. We know that Jesus fasted. We know that Jesus said there would come a time for his disciples to fast. 
His followers have used fasting as part of their spiritual disciplines for centuries. Fasting helps us to stand in solidarity with those who don't have food. So fasting in New Testament times was a part of worship. Just like communion or giving or what uh, prayers, it was part of New Testament believers' life. So why do we not fast? Why do I not fast that much? Well, it, there's something about it that is tough, isn't it? I know that going for a run every two days is, is kind of what I aim at. Going for a run every two days is good for me. But I don't always do it because it's hard. <laughs> going for a run is hard. I know it's going to be hard on my legs and my lungs and I'm going to tire myself out and I don't always do it. Sometimes I just don't do it. Fasting is kind of similar. We know it's going to be hard. We know that going without food for even one meal will be tough. Going, for, uh, going without food for a couple of meals will be tough. So it's easy not to do it. Because it is a form of denying ourselves, isn't it? Our, our natural selves don't want to deny ourselves. We have access to a lot of food and a lot of entertainment, a lot of things, and we just kind of, whenever we want to, we reach out for food or entertainment, and we, we talk about binging food, we talk about binging entertainment, and we don't often think about, okay, I'm going to have a nice steady process here. It's hard, isn't it? I, 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 I recognize that in my own life. It's hard. And yet, I think it points us to the self-denial of Jesus. You see, Jesus is, of course, the ultimate example of denying self and doing things that were hard. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit looked down upon humanity and said they're broken. They are fallen. They need our help. We need to help this people. And so they made a plan. And so Jesus, the Son, came down to earth as a human being and lived among us in the sweat and pain and dirt and difficulty of this life, the joys, the sorrows, all of that. He took it upon himself and became, denied himself, denied the glory of heaven, denied the glory of his life before and came and lived among us and denied himself. Part of that was fasting. Part of that was pain and torture that he experienced as he went to the cross. Part of it was death. And so he is our ultimate example of self-denial. And we will never attain anywhere near that form of self-denial. But we can do small things that will be denial of self when we enter into a time of fasting, we join Jesus in his sufferings, in his denial of self, in making choices for the benefit of others rather than the benefit of ourselves. When the early disciples fasted and prayed about their decisions of who they would send out as missionaries, they were denying their own needs for the sake of those who had not yet heard of Jesus. As we 
kind of wrap up this time of teaching together, uh, maybe some of you have been inspired that, yes, you'll try some fasting. And if so, then we might want to just think a little bit practically about what this might look like. And I encourage you to think about it carefully. And I encourage you to start slow. All right? If you've thought, well, maybe I'd like to try fasting, then start slow. Start just miss one meal. And see what God does in that time that you miss one meal. And then wait a while and maybe another time miss two meals in a row. And, and see what God does with that time in your life. And, and just take it slow and careful. Maybe someday you'll work up to three meals or maybe longer periods of time. But begin slow and, and see what God does with that. One sermon isn't going to be enough, so I encourage you to study what others have learned about fasting and what's healthy to do and what's not healthy to do. Um, those, what, what can we expect? What have people said they, that happens when we do fast? What can we expect from fasting? Well, um, Dallas Willard, who also wrote about spiritual disciplines, he kind of drew upon previous writers like Thomas Akempis and even Richard Foster, that we've already been referring to. And he spoke of fasting like this. He said, Persons well used to fasting as a systematic practice will have a clear and constant sense of their resources in God that will help them endure deprivation of all kinds, even to the point of coping with them easily and cheerfully. He's saying if you learn to get along without food for brief periods of time, you may find that you're able to do without other things from time to time that you don't need. Thomas Akempis says, Refrain from gluttony, overeating, and thou shalt the more easily restrain all the inclination of the flesh. He's saying if we are measured in our use of food, we'll be measured in our use of other things in our lives as well. Dallas Willard explains it this way and says, fasting teaches temperance or self-control and therefore teaches moderation and restraint with regard to all our fundamental drives. Well, there's much more that could be said on fasting and I hope that you might read some other things on it, study your Bible on it and, um, and pursue these things in the next while. Uh, we'll go on to other spiritual practices, but we encourage you to think along the lines of all of these different spiritual practices. Last week, you'll remember that uh, Pastor Tamil helped us. I had kind of given you techniques and methods for how we could pray. And then Pastor Tamil came up at the end and kind of demonstrated for us how we can, with a simple breath prayer, breathe in, breathe out, meditate upon that thought of be still and know that I am God. It was a good balance of, of techniques and then just kind of practicing it in that moment and being with God. And that's what we want to encourage to happen through this whole process. Don't get hung up on techniques. Be with God as well. Try and find that balance of both sides of that equation. All right. I'm going to call up the worship team. They're going to get organized to play here for us again and lead us in some more worship. I'm going to pray with you in a moment, but I'm also going to just kind of wrap it up by saying that, you know, in a, a logic-oriented world, 
You know, I'm kind of a logic-oriented kind of guy. I've studied faith, I've studied science, and I'm a little more bent towards just kind of the head knowledge. But fasting is something that goes beyond just kind of head knowledge. It can be emotional. And what people say about fasting is that, in fact, it doesn't make a lot of logical sense. That when we pray, we saw passages of Scripture last week that said the peace that comes from praying. But when we fast, we don't necessarily know what it's going to do or what's going, what are going to be the benefits, if any, for us in our lives. But we enter into it as a form of self-denial, and we wait and we see what God does with it. So it's not just a logic-oriented sort of thing. It is entering into trust, trust in the goodness of our God. Let me pray with you here. Father, your word tells us that in these New Testament times that we live in today, that you will pour your Holy Spirit out upon all people, men, women, and children, old and young, And so we rely upon that here today, that your Holy Spirit might move upon us, that we might sort out these things in our lives, that we might understand better the spiritual practices of old, these ancient faith practices that we've been studying together. And today we've talked about fasting, and it's a challenging one for all of us. So God, give us extra measure of your Holy Spirit to know your wisdom in these matters. Guide us and keep us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.